Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Aiden Imsirovich. Aiden is a web designer and developer and author and educator based in Bosnia Herzegovina. You can follow him on Twitter at Aiden Imsirovich and check out his website at codingexercises.com. Aiden is the author of a number of LeanPub books, including A Better Way to Learn JavaScript, Save Yourself from 1,000 Hours of Trial and Error Experiences, A Better Way to Learn Vue, and Building Amazing Layouts. Learn the basics of HTML5, CSS3, and Bootstrap. In this interview, we're going to talk about his background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a published and a self-published author. So thank you very much, Aiden, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Thank you, Len, and I'm happy to be here. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for what I kind of jokingly call their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way into a career in web development. Um, yeah, that's actually a really, I guess, kind of a funny story because uh, I got my first computer when I was, I think, eight. Um, yeah, in the 80s. <laughs> I'm a bit of an older dude. Um, so, yeah, I got my first computer back then, uh, Amstrad Schneider CPC 464. Yeah, 64 kilobyte computer. It had like a tape recorder uh, and a player uh integrated the keyboard and it even had its uh, green monocred monitor and you could hook everything up but you could also hook it up to the tv right and then you'd get like a full scale of i don't know 16 cars or something so yeah um that's how i started um and uh, back then it was former yugoslavia the country so uh on a local radio station uh some geek would was obviously working on on that radio station he would actually play video games over the radio waves and you could record them on a tape player and then <laughs> play them and he would say okay right now we're playing uh chucky egg and uh yeah enjoy the ride <laughs> that kind of stuff so I, I started really early right um but um i guess yeah i i never really got into it and funnily enough, whenever I really started getting into it, something would happen, right? Small or, or big thing, like, uh, I don't know, it's kind of funny to say, but maybe a girl would come along to like shake the world or uh, we had a war, of course, that was a big bummer. I remember uh, like um, we would really not have too much electricity. So that time I wasn't even thinking about programming. I was just thinking about playing games. So like 2 a.m., right, everybody's up because the power went on and you don't know how long it's going to be there. So my mom is vacuuming, I'm playing a video game on the computer, <laughs> that kind of stuff. So uh, yeah, it was pretty weird. Um, and basically, like I said, whenever I wanted to kind of really get into it, something would happen to kind of divert me from that way. For example, when I was in my 20s, uh, early 20s, I started working for the uh, UN mission in Bosnia here after the war finished and they were like part of the peacekeeping mission. Um, so I had a lot of field work and the web was brand new back then. So I was kind of like building websites with table-based layouts just as a hobby really. Um, I built it for a friend, but it didn't really take off. Like, I mean, of course, uh, it was also a local market after the war wasn't really well suited for e-commerce, I would say. We didn't have the whole bubble thing, uh, at least not to the extent that you guys in the uh, US and Canada had it. So um, yeah, and then uh, I just kind of watched from the sidelines, so to say, 
um, check in every few years. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I kept working in uh, as a hobby, really, just in building websites for my own pleasure um, and as a pastime. And I was doing lots of design and stuff. And then uh, about 2011, um, I actually started working as a web administrator and a designer for local a local uh, financial company, financial services company. Um, and that's, I guess, where the things kind of started really rolling. And uh, yeah, uh, it just kept on getting better from, from there, I see. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I've got a, a couple of questions. Um, one is um, what it was like to have, so I imagine after the war, so there was this UN presence where yeah, you were. Yeah. I had a friend who worked uh, years ago who worked for the UN in, in Kosovo. And yeah. he, he had interesting stories about how like different parts of town basically were occupied by different countries from the UN. So if you wanted good food, you went to the Italian part of town. And if you wanted to play basketball, you went to the American part of town because that's where the good courts were and things like that. Was, was I mean, was how did, All how did the kinds nature- of crazy stories. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but sorry, sorry to interrupt No, you. no, no, no. That's, that's, that's basically, I was just saying like, you know, that's, that's the sort of best vicarious experience I have to draw on. What was, what was, what was it like to have the sort of a UN presence where you live? Uh, well, it's a funny thing because like uh, I was basically 13 years old when the war started. So uh, in a way, I mean, you're still a kid, so you, you kind of don't have anything else to compare it with, right? I'm assuming for people who are older, they could like kind of say, okay, this is normal life and this is but since you are growing up in that kind of environment, you know, it's like not the usual way to, to, to live, but you don't have any experience to begin with. So, yeah, it's, it's really an interesting uh, mix um, of, of experience, I would say. Uh, and also with the UN, when they came, um, it wasn't only the UN. Uh, in my hometown, because we have a big local airport here that was actually a military airport before the war and now it's civilian um so basically in 95 we had like 30,000 us uh, soldiers coming in uh like the right after the peace agreement was signed and then we also had the russian <laughs> military rushing in so i guess there was some kind of a geopolitical something happening i don't know <laughs> um i tried not to get into politics as much as i can um uh, actually i'm not even watching the news so um there were probably times when i didn't even know who the president was which is kind of weird for this part of the world you, you need to know the politics you know but i just don't really care about it uh but yeah it was it was it was interesting for example one time i remember specifically um uh, this also has to do with Canadians, and I know uh, you being a Canadian, this might be a little bit interesting. Uh, basically, after the war, we had a peace accord that said uh, no uh, firearms are, are allowed to come in, right? And I'm working in this UN, um, a little like a UN international police office. And the basically, there was like police from 40 different countries that the UN sent as part of the peace effort. And uh, the commander of the station was actually an Austrian police officer. And the deputy was also an Austrian guy. And then one, and I was kind of close to them. I mean, you know, I guess I was a good worker and whatever, they kind of liked me. And then one day they called me into the office 
and they usually call it like when you need to translate some documents or maybe simultaneous translation, uh, like to interpret in meetings and stuff. But um, yeah, there was a couple of like really buff, huge guys, right? And I'm like, this just like really skinny 20 year old. And it was kind of interesting to see they're like looking like commandos or something. And I'm like, what's happening? And they say, these five guys, they came over to uh, resolve something. They were like part of a security agency in Austria that came over to uh, bring back a truck that somebody rented and never returned. But the nationalists from Bosnia, and like the, the story gets really like kind of like a crime movie. And basically what happened, they entered Bosnia from the southern border. And on the very southern border itself, there was actually a Canadian battalion, right? And a Canadian camp. And they basically stripped them of all of their firearms. So they went into the country without any firepower, right? And now these five guys are supposed to kind of, I, I don't know how you call it, like enforce or whatever, you know, like get back the, the, the truck. But some local crime boss or whoever who was the cousin of the guy who stole the truck in the first place, he said, we're going to kill you. Like, if that was a genuine threat or not, I don't know. But, like, uh, they came over to the UN to ask for, like, uh, some kind of, how would you say, safety, whatever. And then they send us all the way back to the southern border to escort them, right? Me and two guys from Portugal, police officers. So, uh, yeah, that was... So, it, I mean, there were all these kind of, like, interesting stories like that. So, yeah, it was it was kind of wild. Yeah, thank you very um, much for sharing that. It's it's just so fascinating, the, um, the idea. I mean, one of the reasons I was asking specifically about having this UN presence is, like, you know, in a sense, you can, you can grow up and even you know grow up into maturity and be kind of in in more or less a kind of remote place do you know what i mean like it's not remote yeah. to you but it's you know but then all of a sudden yeah. <laughs> there's people from you know tens of thousands of american troops and there's russians and like they're squaring off and like you know then there's some canadian contingent and, and things like that I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, stories i've heard over the years are like you know how um i heard a story once about how in one of those kinds of situations um the british military intentionally underfunded their soldiers to encourage them to go and be resourceful and so what that meant was basically <laughs> stealing from the american base like toothpaste <laughs> and stuff like that you know yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so amazing i also have some uh not uh first-hand experiences but some friends were telling me like uh like it was allowed to drink or something in some british spaces whatever like parts of the base or they had like their own bar and then everybody would, would kind of go there, but they weren't supposed to go, <laughs> that kind of stuff. So yeah, it was it was funny. Yeah, yeah the, lo lots of stories. Yeah, no, I'm sure. I mean, you've given us, I think, enough of a taste of a taste that our imaginations can go away with us. But thank you very much for sharing that. It's interesting. Just one other thing I wanted to add is that um, uh, you know, this because so many of the people we interview for this podcast are people who you know and end up in technology and things like that. Hearing stories about people's first computers is actually something that that we talk about here. But um. The experience yeah. of of losing power and only having intermittent power has actually come up before. One one person I remember was in Crimea or something like that, and there was stuff going on, right? And and yeah. he actually he actually had to learn how to code on paper because, the, you know, the computer wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't have any power. But that's that's that was such a good good image you gave of you know your mom. You know the power's on. Oh my God, let's take advantage of it. So you play video yeah, yeah, games. Yeah. You know your yeah, mom. It doesn't matter that it's two a.m. You know you're wide awake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, that's fascinating. And so yeah. um. Uh, and so uh, you've got an interesting story that you that you've written about online about learning English. 
Uh, and I was wondering if you could, that, that, that will give us a nice chance to segue into your experience, you know, teaching and things like that. And so I was wondering yeah. if you could talk a little bit about, about that. How did you learn English? Uh, yeah, well, um, basically, um, I've seen lots of movies as a kid uh, on local TV and stuff. And also, it was a time of VHS, uh, video recorders, stuff like that. So we kind of like exchanged tapes and stuff. Uh, we didn't have Blockbuster here. So uh, we had like uh, maybe small vendors that were renting out stuff. But also, if you had like uh, lots of friends, you know, we, we could just like share different tapes among each other or you tape a movie right on the tv right the, the wonders of the of the, the beginning of the digital revolution right <laughs> anyway uh, yeah so movies was was one thing and another thing was, was uh, definitely music because i used to like listen to all kinds of different i guess rock grunge metal that kind of stuff and sometimes like in youth magazines um or old versions of it from before the war, you would kind of like get the lyrics uh, printed in press. And then um, I already had some uh, really um, um, good uh, like Oxford dictionaries. And I would basically take the whole thing and just like circle the words that I didn't know. And then I would research them in depth, like uh, get into the dictionary and then find all the different meanings and. Uh, yeah, so it was really interesting. And then, um, yeah, just, I guess, through repetition, I've kind of um, learned it. But um, the question that you asked me is a bit tricky because uh, I have this, uh, I'm not even sure what to call it. Was it, is it an obsession? Is it a, a, a character fault that I'm always thinking about learning, right? So, like even learning to code and stuff. Um, and um, I'm always trying to put myself into the shoes of somebody who just like sees it for the first time. And I'm just curious about the process. Um, and uh, yeah, so basically I, I'm kind of like, since I'm thinking about it so for, for all that time, um, then I'm, I'm drawing parallels in different ways. Sometimes I think, oh, this is kind of similar to how I learned English. And then other times uh, I kind of make um, similar connections or, or or very different ones. But yeah, so you kind of got me there with the question. I'm not sure this is the answer that that you. Uh, that oh you no want. no no! It's it's really interesting to hear that because um you know not not everyone's sort of necessarily so deliberate and self aware about about what they're doing when they're when they're learning languages on their own like that right and and the idea of purposefully you know sort of situating your learning of the words in a context. Um, yeah, yeah, like yeah. that like that is actually really interesting to me because you know the normal the normal experience people have I would say at least you know I'm kind of dated as well myself but you know is you know you get you get a, a book called a grammar and then you kind of learn lists of words and then you learn the rules for how to put them together but that doesn't match the, that's the way people are normally formally learning languages in the past nowadays things are much more sophisticated you know but um but the idea of actually taking songs so that there's actually like kind of like a melody and maybe a crescendo or, or or something like that or a climax to the song or a story that it's telling and then being yes. able to have that the, the sound along with the, the words to to learn and it, the idea of actually like looking up the words to the lyrics beforehand and then listening to the song just sounds yeah. like a really great idea to me yeah and also it's uh i guess i just kind of stumbled upon it because um and that was a good uh, 
it was a synergy of things and they just kind of came together. Uh, I would also say that I have an egg for languages in general. Um, so that's, that's also important. But I was really interested in those songs. I was interested in that music and I was listening to it over and over again anyway. It's just that like <laughs> you, you hear the words and especially when you're even younger than, than I was, I just kind of mumbled the words. I didn't really know what they were saying, you know. Uh, but then as, as you grow older uh, and you learn the words and you start to understand what's happening. And even today, like if I hear a song that I haven't heard in a really long time, like from before I spoke English, uh, I would say, oh, so that's what it's about. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so it's funny. But uh, looking at it from the viewpoint of, of learning itself, um, I think that was probably the best method because you got, like you say, the contest, the context, you've got kind of grammar rules because songs have to make sense, at least follow some of the grammar rules. Then you also get like colloquialisms, slang, um, I guess you could say maybe things that are cultural, like something, for example, if I'm a fan of a whatever band and then I meet somebody else from another country, who speaks, like who's a native speaker, we have a topic to discuss about and we have kind of like a common ground. So uh, yeah, I think if I could ever translate that to learning to code in the same way, I think that would be uh, an amazing thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, um, uh, it, that's, uh, you just, it set off a memory in my head one of my very good friends we made friends um when neither of us could really speak the other's language very well but we could understand it so i could understand my friend's french quite well and he could understand my english quite well but neither of us could speak but we became friends because we both like nine inch nails and so yeah, we, yeah. we had the common nine inch nails language so we could talk about the album names and the song names and things like that and go to the concert you know that kind of thing yeah yeah uh, but yeah no that's exactly. that's totally correct that's totally great um uh so I actually want to talk to you a little bit about, so, you know, you're, you're a self-taught programmer and things like that. And then you, you found yourself, you know, well, not found yourself, you took up the, the, the opportunity to write programming books and things like that. And, but just before we go on to that, um, we're recording this in uh, early August, 2021. Um, and yes, for sir. the last year and a half, um, I've been, I've been asking most guests a little bit about their experience about the pandemic and things like that. And I was just wondering if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about what things are like for you now in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Um, yeah, um, well, uh, it started off, we didn't really get too many vaccinations in the beginning, uh, but now I think it's getting better, but also it's kind of, I guess, you know, uh, situation around us always shapes our thinking and just the way that we see the world and uh, before the war and after the war also here that I, I mean I lived through it uh, I, I've been here all the time uh, I I didn't live during the war I, I wasn't a refugee or anything um, so there was always lots of politics on TV and in the news and stuff and even when I was working uh, with the UN uh, I would speak to different like guys from different countries and uh, they, they would always say the same thing like oh you gotta watch, watch politics and follow everything and then one day I just kind of got fed up of it and just stopped and I think it was about the year 2000. And I purposefully stopped watching the news completely. <laughs> wow. Uh, and uh, yeah, it kind of just got 
better or worse, depending on which camp you're in. Um, so I really try not to follow anything. And even when I turn on the TV here, like I'm assuming it's the same everywhere. They always have like so many people are sick, so many people are, I mean, I understand I feel bad for those people, you know, but there's so many other things to discuss. And like, for example, a channel that I would watch all the time would be something like coding TV, right? Because um, that, that's that's what I what I'm interested in, what, what I like. Um, so I'm not, I guess, the best source of information regarding uh, the pandemic. And honestly, it hasn't affected me um, at all. I would say maybe that's a, a bold statement, but I'm pretty much doing exactly the same thing, sitting behind the computer. <laughs> Seasons are passing by, and that's it. You know. Um, I'm not saying that's the best lifestyle to have, but yeah, that's 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 my life. So uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not complaining. Yeah, no, thank you very much for sharing that. Actually, we've um, you know, many of the people I've talked to have had varied experiences, and I it's I think it's actually really important to point out, you know, how uh, one's experience is actually kind of determined by the choices one makes about what to listen to and and what to be preoccupied with and things like that. Yeah, and I would say that because so many of the people that we interview on the podcast are programmers and stuff like that. I've had more than one guest say, you know, some version of, to be honest, it hasn't really affected me that much. I, I was working yeah. from home beforehand. Um, I get, you know, most of my entertainment, you know, is is online rather than kind of in person and things like that. And so, you know, then yeah. there's something, you know, and everybody, everybody has their own level of following the news and being preoccupied with the latest numbers or, or, or not being preoccupied with them at all. Personally, I've never been... Um, I made the choice to not get really preoccupied with numbers and things like that, but, but to, to, to follow the, the sort of general trend um, of, and, and things like that. And, uh, yeah. and, and I but, think, uh, sorry, please yeah, go ahead. Please. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I gotta give you a disclaimer though. I just thought of something because I do know people who got sick and like uh, I have heard of people dying and stuff, uh, but I wasn't personally affected by it. So I guess that also affects my, general perception of the world right now and of course i would probably be a lot more interested in if if you know anything worse happened and luckily it didn't so i am empathizing with people who had it rough and also like you say we are really privileged in the it industry especially i mean not always we we have our own burden to bear um People sometimes say, oh, programmers got it easy, but nobody's ever asking about my back, right? <laughs> like, I get back pain from all this sitting down, and then I have to think, like, should I exercise? How am I going to do it? How am I going to organize everything? Especially if you are more of a, honestly, kind of like a lazy person like I am as far as physical uh, exercise goes. Or, I don't know, it's just having a family and children and all of that. By the time you take care of all the obligations, I know it kind of sounds like an excuse. But yeah, it's, it's tough. It, I mean, you know, nobody's got it perfect, right? But I still think that we in the IT world, we survived the pandemic kind of unscathed, I would say, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. And I think, it's, I think it's important to be sort of straightforward about it too, right? Um, uh, and and to, be, to be honest about the fact that, you know, yeah, some, some jobs are, are more easily done remotely than others. Um, yeah, a, lot of, a lot of people did did actually discover that they could do their jobs remotely more than they thought they could. Uh, I've got a couple of friends, you know, one's a lawyer, one's a surgeon. They actually learned that they could do things online that they didn't think they could do before. 
um, yeah. and and uh, and and that you know those those have had sort of you know positive and negative impacts on on you know everybody in their own profession and the people that they serve and things like that. I mean, when it comes to you know one's own personal experience and the, the people you know and things like that, that can be pretty random. You know, like for example, I live on an island. Um, yeah. uh, you know, so that that's actually you know had played a part in in my level of exposure to potential risk and things like that, and that's certainly probably found its way into my attitudes and maybe a certain kind of cavalierness, I would say, for example. Um, uh, but, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, anyway, yeah, th thank you very much for sharing that. This, it's interesting how this and so many other podcasts are going to be these kind of time capsules when it comes to these kinds of discussions in the future. Yeah. Uh, but it's yeah. important to talk about things like this. Um, just moving on to the next part of the interview, uh, where we start talking about your books and things like that. So um, you were a self-taught programmer. You said you were, you know, you, you've already talked about building your own websites and things like that. So I think most more we can we can all more or less get kind of an image of how you did it. You know, you'd set yourself a task, you'd go online or you'd get a book or, or something like that. But you yeah. found yourself uh, writing books. Um, you wrote four books for Pact uh, Publishers. Um, um, yes, and I was sir. wondering yeah. if you could talk about your first book and how you found yourself doing that. Um, yeah, that's also, I, I would say, a funny story because uh, I, haven't, I, I haven't really ever thought about YouTube or podcasts in general or anything like that. Um, and yeah, maybe 2014, I decided to give Udemy a go and I just took, I didn't know anything about video production or like sound recording, whatever. So I get this, uh, software that I found online, Audacity for audio, um, editing. And, uh, I, uh, found some recording software for screen capture. And I just had like some really beat up old PC microphone. And I recorded a short tutorial, uh, maybe 30 minutes. Uh, and the, the idea was, I didn't wanna try to build, like to record anything long or, or big or, or, or difficult to, uh, to come up with and work with, because I just wanted to send a test video to Udemy and their limitation was like 30 minutes uh, minimum. So I did the bare minimum, right? And I sent them the, the video, the tutorial. And they got back to me a few days later and they say, uh, you need to work on your audio, right? So I'm like, obviously, I didn't know nothing about it. So it took me about six months uh, besides my regular work to uh, actually sit down, find equipment, find the time. I had a baby in the house at that time, so that was also hard to uh, organize. Uh, but yeah, I, I kind of somehow did it and I recorded another one and they accepted it. And uh, it was just some HTML and CSS basics. And I got really good uh, comments from people who view, watched it and it was, it was just a free video, right? Like. Um, free mini course, whatever. And then uh, I figured, uh, well, maybe I could give it a go because at that time I was also interested in like all that passive income hype and stuff. And um, so I started like recording videos and I could, and it was a bootstrap uh, course. Um, and, you know, it's, it's funny because I'm kind of a persistent guy, right? So I, my general idea is like, do whatever you can at this time. 
unfortunately for the next year and a half i really didn't have too much time or energy or space basically everything was against me right uh, for example i would wait for because my apartment is relatively small so if there's kids inside you can't really tie them down and tell them like <laughs> don't talk and i guess some people can relate because in covid uh, we had similar like you probably everybody remembers that guy who was on tv and then the nanny and the kid came in yeah and he was yeah that kind of stuff so uh i just decided you know what i'm just gonna do it as much as i can whenever i can so for example on the odd chance of my wife uh, going outside with the kids and me staying alone in the house for like two hours then i sit down and i record something and then later on when they come back it doesn't matter because then i can edit the video and stuff so I would upload that gradually, right? So it was haphazardly. There was really no no plan to it and no organization simply due to the due to the um, situation I was in. So anyway, um, that lasted for about a year and a half. But after a year and a half, I had 18 hours of video. It was pretty in-depth, and I think looking at it from this point, it wasn't that bad, right? I mean obviously i wouldn't publish something like that today but uh it was a start so that that's how i looked at it and obviously it's uh it's a free world and a free market whatever so whoever buys something they can always return it uh if they don't like it same as uh lean pub policy which is pretty i mean i haven't really i'm not sure you, you probably researched it but is there any other place that gives a 45 day refund no questions asked that's a pretty long uh, time to make to to you know to change your mind. Yeah, yeah we can so. we can we can talk about that briefly. I'm I'm happy to talk about that. Yeah, we have something we call our 100% happiness guarantee. Um, uh, and it's yeah. So after you buy a, a book or a course or a bundle on LeanPub, you have 45 days, and with just a couple of clicks, you can return it. The reason there, there's there's basically kind of two reasons. One is just that's just our kind of ethos. We're just kind of like like that. Um, yeah. But the the second and very important reason is that many lean pub books are written in progress, and so the idea is that if some, if you if you're buying a book for, I mean, typically you know authors will kind of raise the price as they write because that's a way to encourage to sort of reward people for being early adopters of a book. But if you yeah. buy a if you buy a book that's one chapter in, uh, you're 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 you know putting some placing some trust in the author, um, and uh, having. 45 days is, it's a little bit arbitrary, but it's basically like, if you don't see a new chapter within 45 days, then you might just get a refund and say, hey, I'll come back later and see if this author actually finishes their project or not. Um, yeah, so to, yeah. so that, that's actually one of the reasons it might be longer than, than in other places that actually, you know, lean pub books are often being written in progress. And so it's a way of saying to the, to the person who buys it, hey, we're giving, we're giving you some protection here from maybe buying a book that isn't going to be finished or something like that. Um, I would say that it's, uh, it's a little bit tricky to talk about because refunds are a very particular thing in the world of self-publishing. And there was, a, I think, a controversy on Amazon relatively recently where the self-publishing blogosphere really blew up over, over refund policies. Um, and so just to address anyone listening who's concerned about that, the refund rate on LeanPub is about 1%. Um, and that's even though it's, anybody can do it really easily yeah, for yeah. any reason no questions asked we do of course you know have a policy about abuse which we enforce right so if someone if it becomes clear to us that someone's 
you know, refunding all their purchases, <laughs> you know, that will put a stop to that. But, um, but yeah, no, uh, more or less, I, I think actually that it's partly the generosity of the refund policy that actually keeps down the rate of refunds because it's kind of a, a friendly, polite, trusting environment on all sides, right? I trust the author to finish their book. You know, I trust you not to get a refund, uh, you yeah, know, things yeah. like that. So yeah, just, yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. Um, that's actually a really important thing. Uh, yeah, I really love that platform. But uh, yeah, I actually owe you the end of the story, right? Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. I kind of went halfway through That's how okay. we made this digression. Yeah. So basically, I wrote, I recorded this video, right? And then out of the blue, out of the blue, um, around Christmas time, 2016, this guy, uh, he holds a job title of acquisition editor for Pact, and he, you know, sends me a message and says, Hey, I've seen you recorded this uh, really long and in-depth tutorial on, on Bootstrap. Would you like to publish a book about it? And yeah, I mean, I'm I'm pretty open to all the new experiences in life. So I just said yes. I, I had no idea how I'm going to do it though, because I was working in a fintech company at the time and I was pretty busy and the kids were also still pretty young and just lots of things happening. But I said, yeah, why not? And a really funny, well, kind of funny, dark humor thing happened. I, I'm not even sure what to call that. Like three days later, I broke my leg. Oh, no. Right? <laughs> so, and I had a cast for four months. Uh, so basically, uh, I say, okay, well, you know, maybe, maybe now's the time to do it. So I actually stayed uh, in that work position for another three months, I would say. And I was thinking, should I write the book? Should I, should I not write the book? I was reading in my free time. I was working remotely for the company. So, you know, thank them for having the vision <laughs> uh, of remote work. But then uh, ultimately uh, we parted ways. And uh, yeah, I was still with my cast on my leg and I just started writing. And it took me about um, seven months to complete that book. It was the first one, 338 pages, uh, about 12 hours of work every day. Uh, every workday, I would say, yeah. So maybe, um, so anybody who's curious about writing, uh, this was my first experience. It was uh, 60 hours, Monday to Friday, on average, yeah. And it took me seven months. But it was a really, really good experience. And uh, looking at it from this vantage point, I would say that the book has some qualities, but it's far from perfect. Um, but yeah, also, I guess maybe uh, maybe we can discuss it later on uh, towards the end of the interview, but I've learned many, I would say valuable lessons about publishing in general from that experience. And I'm not, you know, I really like the PECT publishing platform as well. I think they're doing an amazing work, but uh, this approach that Lean Pub has was actually my comment when the acquisition editor that I got in touch with asked me uh, how can could they improve their processes. And funnily enough, things that I suggested to them, Lean Pub was already doing. Uh, and I'm not sure what they did later on, because like, 
Yeah, well, we can we can actually talk about that right now. We can sort of normally normally we save this for the end, but actually your path through publishing is actually part of your part of your story as well. Uh, yeah, so why don't yeah. we talk about that now? So yeah, um, uh, we've we've had a number of people on the podcast before, and, and even more lean pub authors who have their first experience of book publishing is is with sort of conventional publishing companies, the conventional yeah. publishing process. Basically, everybody's glad they did it at least once. Um, yeah. uh, but a lot of people do, you know, when, when they've had that experience, they're like, oh, you know, there's actually some things about the conventional publishing process that maybe aren't ideal for every project or aren't ideal for me and things like that. So I was wondering if you could, yeah, if you could tell us a little bit about what some of your lessons you learned were. Yeah, sure. Um, for example, I got a really bad re review on that first book from one person somewhere. I read it somewhere and I was like, wow, you know, like this would really guess to me if I wasn't, I would say so positive in life, you know, I always try to look at everything from, uh, from their good side. So even if I get uh, criticism or whatever, I, I try to, you know, I heard uh, an interesting uh, um, phrase recently, it says you either uh, win or you learn. So whenever something bad like that happens, a bad review or whatever, I try to learn from it and just improve my processes in general for the future. Um, so yeah, things that from, from, from the, that very beginning, uh, things that I learned from publishing that from, from authoring that first book, basically like, and I think it's probably the same in all publishing uh, houses, uh, when you're signing a contract with you, right, uh, there has to be something on paper. So it doesn't matter, like, how the book is going. Well, in a way, I'm saying it doesn't matter, but it actually doesn't matter. Uh, you need to kind of have the capacity to envision the whole thing before you finish it. So, like, if you ask a good mathematician, how would you solve this equation? Uh, I'm not sure that everybody would be able to give you a list of 10 steps that would take them to solve it, but they would be able to solve it nonetheless. So I think uh, it's a very interesting thing because you have to, you must put something in the contract, right? So you must, you as a publishing company, you are giving this person some advanced payment or whatever it is uh, written in the contract. And you are agreeing that he's going to do, or, or she, that they are going to do this, 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 and this, right? So you need to specify because contracts are kind of like specifications of a sort. But at the same time, as soon as you've done that, you are kind of cutting off the possibility that that chapter's title might not be the best, or that whole topic is kind of like not the best way to go on about things, or maybe it's correct but it's not really in the best order so um a long story short um well i think this is also an important point that, I, that i'm going to make the second thing that i think is is a problem of um traditional publishing is you have these deadlines right so for each chapter you have a deadline by which you are supposed to be finished and we see that sometimes in movies like when you have like uh, uh that crazy hair author and he's trying to finish the book, but he's got a writer's block. And then his publisher calls him and says, what's up, you're two months past due, due date. And it's the same thing in this industry, right? So 
pretty much everything is the same except um well i guess in a way you do need inspiration but not to that kind of sort as as writing fiction books but anyway basically what happens is you have deadlines you need to hit and i think that the format is good but it's just too 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 strict maybe i'm not sure how to put it at the same time we can say that um self-publishing has uh, uh well not everything in life has its uh, pros and cons i think with self-publishing the problem is opposite you don't have any deadlines right so you must set your own deadlines but still i think that's better you know because what's happening with with traditional publishing if you really must finish the book let's say by may and you are already late two chapters for example and then you really have to work yourself hard it can be stressful work and then in the end there's not going to be enough time for uh, editors to correct grammar mistakes or whatever else mistakes there are and also uh, what people often don't realize is traditional publishing is, is a team sport so once you have written your text um, there's still ways in which uh, it can be edited changed updated and you don't you as the author you don't have you don't have it in full control in your full control because people for example i remember when i wrote the book on the elm language uh, and uh, it has a function called html with a capital h and the last three, three letters are small letters but they actually if i remember correctly they wrote it html as big letters and it was actually code so people who wrote those snippets into whatever editor they were using the code wouldn't run and then they would have like complaints and stuff but it was actually not like the fault of the author it was actually the fault of the editor who maybe used spell check or just wanted to make sure 100 that everything checks out but it didn't and yeah i mean it's 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 interesting but it boils down to i would say the benefits of, of self-publishing being uh, first of all you can change the order of your chapters you can change the topics um, you are not uh, bound by any deadline that would kind of pressure you into taking shortcuts or whatever and then on the flip side like in my case <laughs> it can take forever to write a book right uh, but yeah um, i do have some comments about specifically javascript books on my javascript books on info but maybe it's too early or yeah no no i will we'll get to that actually pretty pretty quickly uh, thank you for, okay. for for sharing all that on that you brought up a lot of you know very kind of interconnected and very complex things when it comes to writing and publishing and you know saying that conventional or traditional publishing is a team sport is a very kind of good way of putting it right and then sort of the idea is that one one part of that team might be marketing right and they might have a plan you know they want to market a book yeah. on this topic in the summer right and yeah, they've got exactly. a budget ready for it and then if there's a writer who's like oh i decided to write a different book <laughs> it, it, it's like they might they might not object at all to the idea or claim that this would be a better book or something like that but they're like no we've got a we've got a plan we've got books on these three interconnected topics we want them to come out in this order we've got a whole yeah. marketing marketing sort of funnel set up and things like that and we need a book on this topic at this time and and then as an author you're like well you might you might be totally sympathetic to that but if you've been working on a book for let's say a year which is which isn't wouldn't be unusual 
and then they're like and you've been trying to make it really good and now they're like phone in the last chapter so you can make the make the deadline you know that can yeah. actually be a really difficult thing to choose to do because you're like well you know from from one the marketing team's perspective this is just a product but if i if i write if i phone in my last chapter that's my reputation forever that's on the line and things like yeah. that can become complicated you know so like there's it's like it's really it's actually really hard business um and uh and and from the self-publishing side of things there's no team right and so you know unless you're paying for it which you can do um and so that 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 has the benefits of the fact that like I remember a, a friend of mine who, you know, spent years slaving over a book of poetry and then the publisher decided to put a cover on it that he hated. And okay, it's like, yeah. well, that's the first thing everybody's going to see. And it's going to, especially if you're an artist, you know, like you might be like very sensitive to what's being depicted in association with what your book is about. And then to have that authority just completely taken away from you. And then from the publisher's side, it's like, well, I funded this thing, damn it you know, yeah. and I tested these covers and this one's going to sell better. And so, but anyway, but with the self-publishing side, yeah, well, you don't, you might have to make your own cover. You might not have the benefit of other people's input as much as you would. Well, you probably won't have the benefit of other people's input as much as you would like with a development editor. But as you, as you point out, that can actually be complicated too, right? Because someone whose profession is, is book editing and not programming might, might be a little bit presumptuous about what the programmer is writing uh, yeah. and apply rules that work in 95% of contexts, but just don't work in this specific, this specific one. So yeah, there's, it's a, it's a tangle of problems. It's a very, it's a very difficult thing. And I think it's very important for people who get into it to, you know, do some research and learn, learn in advance. Um, and the last thing I'll say about that is that, you know, this is slightly self-interested, but uh, you know, it's been kind of notorious for years that that team has been that you think you're going to get when you go with a conventional publisher has um, doesn't have as many players on it as it used to. And so, yeah. you know, now um, typically you'll be asked, well, I mean, if you, if you, and I'm like, I'm talking about like, if you're, if you're trying to publish a conventional book with a conventional publisher, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, you will be asked to provide a business plan. You will be asked what your marketing is going to be. What's your online platform? How many followers do you have? How are you going to use your online presence to market your book? And, you know, authors that are famous and authors that aren't famous will sometimes respond. Isn't that, isn't that your job? What's, what's the point, you know, of, of me, of me going with you at all, if, if you're going to ask me to do all the work. And that is, that is actually one of the things that's been driving people in the direction of self-publishing more and more is that, you know, it, it's sort of like the, the lines become very blurry when you're being asked to, you're trying to write a novel about, I don't know, you know, vampire werewolves. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, and also you need to learn how to write a business plan. You know, yeah. <laughs> not, not yeah. my thing. But anyway, that, that's, a, that's all gives us a really good opportunity to talk about your, your book, um, A Better Way to Learn JavaScript. And uh, what was your inspiration for, for moving into self-publishing? I mean, we've talked about that already a little bit, but specifically, what was, why, why did you write, um, as, as I think you've said it somewhere, yet another book on JavaScript? Yeah, um, that's a that's a pretty interesting story. Um, at least for me, um, it's um, it's one of those things like you kind of answer your own questions as you go on about your work, everyday work and stuff, and you know you just kind of like uh, a light switch goes on. You know, 
and it happens once maybe on a Monday and then again two weeks later and then again three weeks from there and it kind of builds up into something and you see that okay you, you have a genuine um, overarching question to yourself you know and that question for me was uh, looking at the publish also the experience of, of publishing with a with a publishing company also was was a huge part of it for example uh one of the things that i said to my um, uh publisher was uh, when they were asking me how to improve as a company i told them you need to write evergreen books and what i meant by that is uh, by the time i wrote my third or fourth book for them the first book that i wrote was already uh outdated right and of course, you're not going to be happy about it because um, you, you invest a lot of time into doing something. And then in a year or two, it kind of gets forgotten because that book that I wrote was about Bootstrap 4 when it was in alpha, uh, in alpha version. And now we've, <laughs> we've got Bootstrap 5 and nobody's maybe talking about Bootstrap 4. So, yeah. Um, so. And it's not like it happened 10 years ago, it happened a couple of years back. So that was my realization that books should, well, it was an idea that I wanted to test, but the, the general idea was books should be sort of like software. So instead of saying first edition, second edition, you should say version 24, whatever, you know. Um, and I know it doesn't make a lot of sense from the, I would say from the maybe money-making side, because once you sell an evergreen book to somebody, that's it, right? It, you, you can't have a repeating customer because you can't come out and say, oh, you know, I'm gonna write the second or third edition. And the reason for that might be genuine. There might be an improvement in software that you're covering or whatever. So it, there, there might really be a reason to, sub, to publish a second edition in traditional publishing, but, my idea was well if that happens i'll just add more stuff to the existing book and so that that was one one motivation and the other part of the big motivation for me was the realization that and this is funny right because i'm not even sure if this is controversial but i i, I i'm a firm believer in what i'm going to say next and that's that there's not that many books on javascript that are actually useful and like I said, many people might probably disagree with me, uh, but here's an example. There's a really uh, famous book on JavaScript, and I believe it's got lots of high quality merit. Um, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say the name, would that be considered like bashing somebody? Because I know it's hard to write a book, so I don't know, should we keep it? Uh, it's as, in, as it's a, entirely up to you. If I were you, I wouldn't. Name yeah, it. I just I, I, I don't think so. I, I just don't if, feel if, if you can be... if you can describe the thing that you that, uh, that well, you see it's problematic. Yeah. That's that's probably I, enough. I'm, yeah. I'm going to describe just this specific thing that I yeah. kind of didn't like. I'm reading the first chapter of this famous book on JavaScript, right? And at the end of the chapter, the author is giving you like a, kind of like a homework or test or a, a, a challenge to solve. Uh, and he's giving you a specific instruction, you need to do such and such, and you need to get such and such output, whatever. 
And I'm looking at it and I realize if that was my first book on JavaScript, I would have no idea how to do it. And I would probably bang my head for the next two days trying to solve it and end up on Stack Overflow or just Google what's the solution to this question with the book title and everything. And I realized that it's not a very effective way to do things, you know. And you might say, well, everybody in coding needs to go through that process of, you know, really straining your brain, trying to, you know, brute force to solutions or whatever, research them, you know, uh, do the do whatever is necessary to uh, earn that badge, so to say. But and I agree with that, but I don't think it's supposed to be like happening on the very first chapter of, of a new book you pick up. And I also think it's kind of disheartening for, for that uh, newbie. And I'm always trying to look through their eyes, right? So yeah, please. Yeah, I was just gonna say, um, is this what you mean when you talk, I've read a couple of your posts about this, where you talk about the missing staircase? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you, you like, basically you climb up, you're climbing up the stairs and you get to the, yeah, you get, you get the and then all floor. of a sudden, all of a sudden, there's a staircase missing. So you can see, you can see the door to the fourth floor, but you're stuck on yeah, the landing, exactly. landing on the third, and the staircase is empty between yeah, you and the fourth floor. Yeah. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you were thinking like, uh, well, maybe if I was Spider Man, this would be easy, and and that's like a part of that uh, whole thing, uh, imposter syndrome, and people who start to pick up coding thinking they're stupid, whereas actually it's opposite, right? Well, maybe it's a harsh word. Uh, nobody really can be thought of as stupid, but definitely something that people, well, that, that's what I realized through, through this process of self-publishing this book specifically. I realized that most people, even on, on MDN or bunch of resources who are really uh, praised, don't think things through, right? For example, um, there were specific examples that I was looking at when I was writing my book. And I was researching how other people covered it. And I realized one amazing thing. There is a gist of that, whatever it was, like uh, a function or, or some concept uh, specific to JavaScript. But the way they explained it was they threw a bunch of HTML at the example. They threw a bunch of CSS, a bunch of code that you need to read. And, and so it, it kind of gets lost in, in translation, so to say. you know. And I was thinking it would be a lot better to have the simplest possible example that people can build on. And in a way, like I told you earlier about that mathematician guy. So in a way it would be better instead of having 10 steps of solving something, have the bare minimum of, of the three steps that you are always going to be faced, faced with. Uh, and then I was even having the idea of maybe doing for example, with the DOM manipulation, that's in book four now, uh, to have like 50 examples of the most common things that you need to do with DOM manipulation, like models and, um, I don't know, burger menu pop-ups and whatnot. So uh, just narrow it down to the bare minimum. And then once you have all the bare minimums in these 50 examples, then you can kind of get the overarching idea then you can kind of extract, get that uh, elusive knowledge of like what connects all of these two, all these 50 things together. But you can't really do that if you've got too much, what do they say, craft, like too much or too many ornaments around that, like uh, CSS animations and transitions and whatever, you know. 
it just gets too complex. So I was really trying to get to the to the source of it. So that's that was a part of, of that motivation. But another thing was like in book one, um, I wrote uh, actually an article on Medium. That's that's what started the whole thing, uh, and I gave it a name of uh, uh, the anatomy of a JavaScript function. And basically, I really thought of it like let's let's imagine I'm not a coder and I'm looking at this thing for the very first time. So I kind of really thought about analogies and how to describe it the best way possible. And I came up with an analogy of a bottle capper machine. And I know it kind of sounds stupid, <laughs> but I wanted to have something that's really simple, a machine that takes a bottle and a cap and puts them together. And in code, that would be like concatenating two strings, right? So I just wanted to have, for people to have a, a visual idea. And then the function, the keyword function, they, that would be like the machine itself. And the function name, that would be the machine name. So when you say function bottle capper, it's the same as saying machine bottle capper. And then the parentheses, they are like the places to receive raw materials. And then whatever is in uh, those squirrely brackets um, is whatever gets returned, right? And then it goes on from there. Or for example, uh, I've even, personally, I've never seen like, and this is maybe even a more trivial example of people, well, maybe maybe these days, because there's lots of material going out, but at least like five or 10 years ago, you would hardly ever see people actually explaining even the simplest concepts of, for example, what the assignment operator is. That it's like specifically like in big bold letters saying it's not maths, it doesn't have anything to do with mathematical operations. It's an assignment of whatever is on the right to whatever is on the left. And without these really simple, simple concepts, it was, it would be, I, I assume, really hard for people to, um, to actually get the best knowledge they could with what they were given in, in, in the books. Um, and yeah, there, there, there's more, more things like that that I, that I took into account. Like for example, um, when I started writing, I thought it, it was gonna be the only one book, right? And it was a process of discovery for myself also, because after I wrote about 500, 650 pages, I realized uh, I've got at least double this and who's gonna read the 1200 page book. So I thought, okay, I guess I can split it. And then once I started splitting it, I split it into three books then I came to the to about uh, the half of the third book, and I realized I'm going to need more books. <laughs> so it ended up as a five book series, and I never really intended to to uh, start like that. And um, also, funny thing, since I started in 2018, I, I never really thought it was going to take this much time to do it because, like, books four and five are still incomplete. But at the same time, and this was also a big motivation of mine, uh, I wanted to have like a one-stop shop, so to say. I wanted to really have something that a person could read from beginning to end and have it like a flow, kind of like condensed um, experience, so to say. And that's why I said uh, skip 1,000 hours, because basically my idea was like for people not to have to go through that brute force process. And even though I, I know it's worthwhile on its own, I think it's overrated. Uh, I think uh, 
it should be left for later, right? Like maybe if, if a new coder would read 10 kind of perfect evergreen books like I explained here, then after those 10 books, they could maybe then have to brute force their, their way through through some tough problems, tough practical problems of work. But it should, I don't think it should be the first thing. Like, you know, like if, if you think about sports or whatever, like, can you imagine like, uh, I don't know, a person uh, start, a kid starting to play soccer and going to the field for the first time. And then um, the coach tells them, you need to hit this ball, like from one goal post to the other. And until you do it, we're not going to practice anymore. And then she just leaves. It kind of feels like that. It almost feels like, kind of, in a way, it feels like people are being cheated out of, of, of an experience. And I'm not saying this lightly. I just think that most authors and, and book writers and uh, people who record tutorials, they just don't think things through. And I understand why. I mean, money is definitely motivation but in my case it's secondary you know i just decided i want to be on this journey and just see where it takes me and it's like a hobby of mine that actually pays right <laughs> i was talking to a friend recently and he said well you got a hobby that pays most people got a hobby that they just invest in <laughs> so yeah that's that's um you can you can see that I'm thinking about these things oh, a lot, oh, right? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Actually, it's, it's really it, there. I mean, there's we could talk about the things you you just talked about for for a very long time. Um, there's a lot there's a lot in there. Um, one of the things that's actually come up on this podcast a couple of times recently, very specific, is actually very similar to what what you're talking about. It came up with um an author named Eric Mathis who wrote a Python book, and an author named Charles Scalfani who just wrote a functional programming book. And it's the idea that the how am I going to put this? Um. You have to have gone through it in the first place to be able to see what the missing steps are, right? What the missing staircases are. Like you can't, you can't know it until you've been through it. Um, yeah. But actually making sure to get every step along the way takes a very particular kind of determination uh, yeah. and a very particular kind of discipline because definitely you find yourself as a writer. So in, in addition to sort of all the other things, like, you know, I want to make the money, I want to get the book out, things like that. The actual, it's a very particular kind of discipline to not leave steps out. And I don't say that with a judgment, you know, a value judgment one way or the other. It's, it's just really making sure that you get every step in there is like, it, it comes down to like, oh, you know what, there's this, the, the, the sports game that I want to watch just started. So it's either this one little step, uh, nobody's really going to care that much. I'm just going to go watch the hockey game or something like that. And it's like, yeah. actually, like the, 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 when I say discipline, I mean, like, I don't just mean like being a hardworking person or something like that. It can actually be, you can, your mind can play tricks on you to try and keep you from, from, from doing every single step. And, um, and so, and the other thing is that, and that, that actually, by the way, does end up often in very long books. Um, and a lot of, and actually also a lot of interactions with readers and things like that. Uh, but the other thing that you've brought up a couple of times is, you know, to kind of abstract away from writing, although that's a very important writing book, so that's a very important example of it. Journeys have an arrow of time, right? And, yeah. and, and you don't really understand where you were at the beginning until you get to the end, but you still have to make choices about what path to take at the beginning. Uh, and so I, I, a common example would be choosing what to major in in university. If you go to university, for example, well, how do you know? Right. 
you don't you don't know right where it's going to take you don't know and, and one of one of my jokes actually is borrowed from my brothers is, is that you know when you hear people say oh that's just economics 101 yeah that's someone you know never went on to economics 408 because everything you learn in 101 is a lie because yeah <laughs> because you can't you can't speak to someone who's just starting like they're an expert so you have to give them give them things that you know, are meant to be for the beginning of a journey, not the end. And if you think what you learned in whatever 101 is the end, you know, you, you didn't understand what was being taught to you, you know, and, and, and but then that as, as the student, or the person learning anything new or getting in, into any new area, that puts you in a paradox, because you still have to choose, right? Another example is, you know, martial arts, like, how do you know that your teacher's not a total charlatan? Well, you kind of, you kind of can't, right? Like you, you I mean, yeah. there's, there's certain things, right? Obviously, like there, there might be obvious signs, but um, you know, you you actually do have to just kind of trust and commit yourself at least to something at the beginning. And then specifically when it comes to sort of like, let's say it's for your profession or for, for your class and you want to learn a programming language and you get to the end of chapter, it's only chapter one and you get to the end and you're stuck. And, exactly. and, and that like, you don't know, is it me or is it the author? If it is the author, is this a normal problem that authors have in communicating things like this? Anyway, I mean, it's, I, I think you just, you put better than me, just, you know, bringing together all the complexities of this kind of thing. And the fact that, you know, to, to write a book that, like the reason books like that, that, that don't have any missing staircases end up being 600 pages long, and then it's just part one of five, is, is, <laughs> is that, is that it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's actually, that's actually the easiest way to do it from the student's perspective or the learner's perspective in the end, even though yeah. it might seem daunting at the beginning, uh, which is another yeah. reason why actually sort of like, you know, books that are like the quick start guide are actually really appealing to people, right? Because, but, but actually like it, they can actually end up shooting themselves in the foot because you actually going to, in the end, you're going to waste that thousand hours because you didn't um, spend a hundred really yeah, learning exactly. things properly you know exactly um but yeah even those quick start guides uh, they are also an interesting um i would say an interesting way to look at things because uh, that, that, that's that's actually something that well i did write two two quick start guides for the for the other publishing company so that's also interesting but what i'm what i'm trying to say is like right now um i'm about well, okay, let's let's be uh, let's be a bit uh, optimistic and say that most of the first, second, and third book is finished, and the fourth and fifth are kind of like thirty percent each, maybe. Uh, but I kind of see the end uh, of this first iteration, and my plan for the once that the whole thing is complete, the plan is to go from the beginning of the first one. And just like keep on doing that and um the idea that i have right now that i'm that i'm kind of toying with is should i try to make it as short as possible without i guess that's that's almost like refactoring code right uh i wrote the implementation and now i'm thinking how to just make the code more beautiful but in this instance it's actually the process of learning so uh yeah, it's it's an interesting question for me, and I don't have a definitive answer, definitive answer. Because uh, is it possible to narrow down a six hundred fifty page book to, let's say, four hundred pages without losing something? So yeah, that that it's an open question. Uh, but 
Yeah, it's it's also uh, I see this as an adventure, right? Because um, I think this next thing that I'm going to say is really important. Uh, I believe many people think, like I said, if I work on on a book that is going to be evergreen and take oh, 10 years to write and whatever, it's just not worth it. But I'm thinking, even from the economic, from the business viewpoint. It is because there's just so many topics in IT that you can't really ever run out of them, right? So why not try to, to, to make that, that thing to, to the best of your ability? And yeah, that's, that's the path that I'm on. And again, this is like a side project anyway, right? It's not like, sometimes I wish I was working on it 24 seven because uh, I would see the end of it uh, faster not for the sake of uh, having it being done, but just to see the end product. It's like, you know, um, kind of like to look back to the beginning uh, with the 80s computers and stuff. It's kind of like those old platformer games that I used to play as a kid. And part of the magic was, I'm always like curious what's gonna, like the next level, what it's gonna look like, like how it's gonna feel, right? So it's the same way with these books. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking like once, once I'm personally happy with how they look like, uh, what's going to be the next thing then? Like, um, yeah, it's, it's like I say, there's more open questions than, than definitive answers, but it's interesting. It's an, it's an interesting journey. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, we wish you all the best on that journey. And we're always happy to see more, more of your books um, appear on Lean Pub and, and chapters getting Thank added you. and things like that. Um, uh, the last, speaking of things coming to an end and new beginnings and things like that, um, the last question we always ask in these interviews is if there was one thing you could ask us to fix on LeanPub that really bothers you, or if there was one feature you could ask us to build for you, oh, can you think of anything that you would ask us to do? That's that's a tough one. Uh, can I say that the platform is perfect for me? Uh, I mean, obviously, there's always things that you can do to improve, but I'm really happy with how it works, um, with how it's set up. The Markua, am I pronouncing it correctly? Yes. Yeah. yeah the the Limpub uh, variety of uh, Markdown, um, I'm really happy with it as well. Uh, I'm, I'm my own blog is uh, in Jekyll. So uh, I'm using liquid syntax uh, anyway on there, and it's it's really easy uh, uh, way to uh, continue working on on LeanPub. It's kind of like almost the same workflow. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, well, thanks thanks very much for that. I mean, if you if you can ever think of anything, uh, you you know my email. You know, please just please just email me um, uh, anytime. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean if. You know what I, what I when people do people do sometimes answer that way and I have sort of two things I say the first is that if someone doesn't have anything to say that really bothers them or anything to build that's because we've asked this question many times before on this podcast and then we've sort of like listened um, and the other thing is you mentioned before you know getting that one bad review uh, one of the funny things is that you know for everyone who's like and this is not specific to a, a platform like LeanBub it's just any app or platform there's going to be there's going to be someone who's like, wow, it does everything I wanted. Isn't this amazing? And then there's going to be somebody else who's like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. It's totally <laughs> counterintuitive. It doesn't have anything that I want. I can't believe it. So anyway, we're, we're, we're just as happy actually to usually to hear both as long as, as long as they're 
as long as they're said constructively, <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, yeah, uh, I agree with that. But anyway, uh, Will, thank you very much uh, for taking the time out of your evening to be on, on the podcast. And thank you very much for choosing LeanPub as a platform to publish your self-published books. Thank you very much, uh, Len. And uh, it's, it's a pleasure to, um, dare I say, work with, with LeanPub uh, because that's how it feels. It really feels effortless. And I would recommend it to everybody, yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.